There's a change happening in the way we live, the way we work, the way we spend our money and make our decisions. We are evolving to be more conscious in our actions in a way that serves the world and makes it a better place. Welcome to The Ethical Evolution. The Ethical Evolution podcast is brought to you by The Ethical Change Agency. I'm Bindi, CEO and founder, and I am honoured to bring you the stories of those who create change through paying it forward and giving back. Ethical business owners and holistic healers who are determined to create collective change in the world. Once we have a change in consciousness and through collective change, we can become one. Stephen Ogden is an Anglican priest and theologian, now based in Adelaide. We first met about a decade ago, where he was a guest on my LGBT radio show, talking about love and inclusiveness. He's just finished his fifth book that focuses on violence, entitlement and politics, and he's not your regular parish priest. Stephen is an advocate for change, bringing taboo conversations out of the dark and into the light. There's not many people you'll meet who simply are a reflection of spirit, kindness and love. But Stephen is exactly that for me. I hope you enjoy this connection and learn something new along the way. Welcome, Stephen, to The Ethical Evolution. Thanks, Bendy. Happy to be here. Now, uh, many people would not know that you and I have known each other for, I think it's about a decade now, and the yeah, last yeah. <laughs> the last time we were behind microphones together was in a radio station. That's right. And, uh, yeah, I think the radio show was called Get Your Queer On. Yep. Yep. And we were talking about love. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. And you had Keep your book. Memory. I've still got it here in my bookcase. Oh, good. Your book. Uh, I'm so, impressed. Yeah, so um, I still remember that was a very back in back in the day. That was a very uh, what can I say? Um, you know, probably taboo kind of topic, I guess. Back then, um, yeah. we've come a long way since then. Yeah, but lots of good things are happening now. I yeah, think. and but so before we get started, um, and before I get carried away, um, can you tell us who you are and what you do? Yeah. Okay, uh, I'm. Stephen Ogden, I'm an Anglican priest and uh, theologian. Um, I'm married to Anne, uh, who's uh, fantastic. She's a, a senior palliative care counsellor, and we've got um, uh, three handsome sons, a gorgeous gay one in uh, Chicago, who's currently trying to get back uh, oh. to Australia. Um, and that, that's a separate podcast. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we're. <laughs> Yeah, so we're very pleased with the boys and uh, Anne and I are busy. But I've been, as an Anglican priest, I've kind of, um, I've done everything. I've been a parish priest. Uh, at some stage I was the Dean of St Peter's Cathedral in Adelaide, which was a fantastic, mm. really open, inclusive uh, community. Uh, and then I was, uh, I guess you could say headhunted. That always sounds a bit dramatic. <laughs> I, I moved from Adelaide to Brisbane about, uh, ten years ago, that's when we met, and I became the, uh, the principal of the theological college in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. And then, after about eight years, 
uh, I then moved back to a parish in, in uh, well, you know, Fortitude Valley. Yes. And uh, I was only there for, for two years, but I've got some good stories. And then uh, basically we've got grandkids in Adelaide and two of our three sons moved back. So we moved back to um, Adelaide a few years ago. I'm sort of in between jobs at the moment, but I hope—I mean, I hope to answer questions, but I hope that gives you a bit of a feel. But I've—I've I've been in the church a long time. I've had senior and privileged positions in that phase. Um, I know where all the bodies are buried, <laughs> uh, and I've had—I've had some uh, wonderful experiences of really vibrant, open, inclusive communities, but I've also had to deal with you know, uh, the politics and abuse of power. Mm. Uh, and, in, and in some, at one level too, you know, the churches like the university, university or hospital system, you know, it's a mixed bag and you, you, you look out for the good people and the good groups that want to do good things really. So, mm. uh, so at the moment I'm in between jobs. I've just started doing a bit of part-time um, chaplaincy at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital here but I'm still writing. I focused the last probably uh, eight to ten years on academic books. Mm-hmm. So a few years ago, I wrote a book on the use and abuse of power in the church, uh, which is very relevant. Mm. And, uh, actually, it came out. It came out just before the Royal Commission on uh, the uh, abuse of children in institutions. Oh wow! So it was timely. And now I've got another book coming out uh, next month on. Uh, uh, violence and entitlement. Um, mm. When I was in Fortitude Valley, I supported a couple of uh, victim survivors of domestic violence and uh, terrific people, but, you know, it was arduous. I don't mean that the, 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 the persons were difficult, but mm. the, their situation and how you support them, because there are often gaps in the system, yep. was really tricky. And uh, so while I was up there, I went and did some training at uh, DV Connect in Brisbane. Yep. But they were brilliant. And so I was with these three, for three days with these amazing, mainly women, and they kept talking about entitlement, masculine entitlement. Mm. So I thought, thought, well, what exactly does that mean? So I spent the last four years uh, reading about violence and entitlement and uh, put together a, a book about, I mean, it's an academic book, but it analyses all the research that's been done on entitlement and then looks at the question of, um, you know, how do you bring about change? Uh, how do you change perpetrators, for example? Can you change perpetrators? Uh, and and what brings about long-term change? So that's coming out next month. And I'm really pleased with that book because, um, I mean, I like writing, but I just feel that this is this is what I'm hoping this one will make a small contribution uh, to a wider debate. Um, I don't think it'll be a small contribution either, Steve. Um, and, and you know, I think this is why uh, you and I have always aligned so well. You're all about um, making change and, um, you know, also you love to have the conversations that nobody loves to have. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I, I find that kind of, um, you know, in terms of my understanding of uh, spirituality, I feel I'm called to be uh, open, courageous, transparent. You don't have all the answers, but you, you, you're called to be uh open to others and ideas Mm. that takes you to dangerous places really (laughs) oh look you know um i think when we we you know 
break those boundaries down when it comes to those kind of conversations. That's that's where the true change happens. And, yep. you know, a decade ago, you and I both saw that. Um, you know, back in the day, to have an Anglican priest come into the radio station and talk about being gay and, and yeah. gay love was just completely unheard of. But I was like, I was game, you were game, let's go for it. It was great. That was good. And funny, you know, the, uh, the queer community has been actually since that time has been an incredible supporter of mine and mm. you know, various queer groups that keep dragging me, you know, wanting me to do things. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I mean, obviously I've got on the parent of a gay son, but who's gay, gorgeous and single and looking. But, but, uh, <laughs> Dad's just putting in that. <laughs> he's, he's in marketing, so I'm allowed to do this. But, but um, I think too what I've, I've Part of a queer group in Adelaide at the moment. Lovely, I'm, I'm the straight mate, and lovely group. But in a way, uh, a lot of the uh, men and women and uh, trans persons in that group, they've seen everything. Mm. They've got nothing left to lose. No. So, so there's a kind of um, honesty and transparency in in that kind of group. So over the years, I've done all sorts of things because the I think there's a kind of um, a carriage in the queer community that invites engagement and I, I find that, um, you know, wonderful really. That, and, and to me that's, you know, from a Christian perspective, that's that's the essence of the faith really. So. Yeah, and that's, that's the other thing that I love is, you know, like we hear so much um, particularly in the queer community about how religion, you know, doesn't accept us and that, you yeah. know, you know, all of that kind of stuff um, and that we should be ashamed of ourselves and all these yeah. kind of things. Um, but the thing that I love about chatting with you is that you know that 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 doesn't that doesn't happen. Um, you you when you preach, I would imagine um, it is that love is love. Yep. And look, you know, the the problem is like there are two and a half billion Christians, and there are there are sections that are raving fundamentalist, misogynistic, and homophobic, mm. and violent. And that's to my eternal shame. But mm. there are also very open uh, communities that are being led by uh, queer ministers and priests doing wonderful things. It's a, it's a real uh, uh, mixed bag. Unfortunately, in the last five or ten years, the religious right has been growing in Australia, and that's disappointing because it's. But you know, to be honest, I don't see the religious right as remotely Christian. Um, if I, you know, I was really captivated by. You know the first uh, century stories of, about Jesus. If you set aside, you know, the ancient accretions and the and the mythological uh, nuances, you know, Jesus had a group of friends and they built friendships and they were open and they shared meals together. And uh, in a way, it's it's as complicated and as simple as that. Mm. Really. Yeah, and that's it. You know, we're we're all human. You know, we're all exactly same on the outside and the inside, really, regardless of yeah. our skin color, race, religion, sex, whatever it might be. Um, and I think that's again another thing that I love about you, as a, you know, being um, from Anglican faith, also myself. Oh, well, that's how I was raised. Um, yeah. I think that is kind of rare for a lot of people to experience and um, and something that, you know, I really love about you. Um, the other thing I would kind of want to tap into, Steve, sure. is um, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the, the power within the church and, and the potential abuse sure. that's happened. 
Um, what can you tell us about what you've written and what you found? Okay. In the first two or three centuries, you know, <clears throat> uh, the church was a, a, a collection of uh, little communities all around the Mediterranean. And they really worked at this love theme, this inclusion and openness. And if you look at it in its historical context, they were radical communities. Uh, women had a, a place of leadership. They were cross-cultural communities. And then roughly from the second or third centuries, you know, as the church grew, we started to become institutionalised. And then in the, in the fourth century, Constantine, the emperor, took over. And we were, you know, we'd say in today's speak, we were corporatised. Mm. And what is really fascinating is... Um, and Constantine partly took up the Christian faith for political reasons. But what was fascinating is that some of the bishops in the church then started to emulate Roman generals mm. and they expected to be paid and they wanted to um, wear the purple like the Roman senators. Mm. So really from the second of the third centuries onwards to the last 50 or 60 years, it ch- changed like World War Two, but really... For about, you could say, 15 or 1,600 years, the church became very institutional. So there were fantastic people and, you'd know, and fantastic communities. So, you know, during the Middle Ages, there were these extraordinary, often female mystics mm. like Julian of Norwich and Hildegard of Bingen. And uh, so there, there has been diversity, but up against it has been an institution that became self-absorbed. And one of the things that it did it created a, a kind of um, a culture of obedience. So now it, this is a problem in most institutions. Um, one of my favourite philosophers, Nietzsche, talks about institutions as being a bit like master, master and slave uh, relationship. So you have this as a problem in universities and hospitals today. For example, it's very brave to be a whistleblower mm. in a university or a hospital system. Mm. But what made it more complicated in the church was there, there was this uh, blind faith or this culture of obedience. Yes, Father, no, Father, three bags full. So there was an extra layer of um, institutional oppression. Now, that changed radically in the sec- after the Second World War when, you know, the church didn't have the answers. Um, it forced a lot of ordinary Christians, a lot of the ordinary punters, as well as theologians, to say what's going on here. Mm. And really the last 70 years has been a really uh, creative period because people have said, well, you know, the Monty Python God, you know, the old bloke with the beard yep. in the sky who who pulls the strings, yep. that God's not working. Mm. Uh, so there has been a really creative period where uh, people have explored all sorts of spiritualities, theologies, uh, new types of communities uh, have developed uh, in some parts of the church around the world. Uh, you know, queer people have come into positions of leadership in some in some places in America. There are queer bishops. There are African bishops in, in the United Kingdom. You know, it, so there have been like an explosion of, it's probably the wrong word, but a burst of uh, creativity and uh, what that, that's been really healthy because uh, in some ways when it comes to faith or spirituality, in, in the end you always have to start from scratch mm. and we're often dragged into it 
after a crisis, you know, after a relationship breakup or retrenchment or work or illness, we're forced back to first principles. You know, what's going on here? Mm. What do I really believe? What do I really aspire to? So in some ways since the Second World War, uh, much of the church has gone through that process with the exception, unfortunately, of the rise of the religious right. Mm. And, yeah, oh, wow, there's there's so much to cover there in, in what you just said. And I know you and I have chatted separately um, about the difference between religion and spirituality. And, sure. um, you know, being a spiritual coach myself, um, it's something yeah. that, you know, I talk to people about a lot um, when I, you know, did my training and I told people that's what I now do. Um, they were yeah. kind of like, well, what, what, what does that mean? Like, like, are you yeah. religious now? And I'm like, no, yeah. that's not what this is. So I know you have some really cool views on this. Do you want to share that? Sure. Look, um, in the last couple of decades, uh, especially in America, Australia and Europe, you know, the church has been on the nose and there have been, been some real issues around child protection or child abuse. Mm. And even though um, you could argue that uh, in a number of cases it was because of failed leadership, uh, there were many people who were also complicit because they said nothing. Mm. So... So I think um, in the West, particularly, there's been there's been a wariness about uh, religion, institutional religion, and some of that is based on stereotypes that aren't true. But mm. some of it is based on things like, you know, uh, priests or bishops who are bullies, issues around uh, child abuse. So, mm. so the term religion in a lot of places, that too is on the nose. Mm. And with some uh, justification, in, in, in essence, someone who's the best sense of it, someone who's religious, really just makes a kind of commitment, a, an open or public commitment to a particular spirituality, mm. right? Yeah. And, and that then takes a certain kind of institutional shape in terms of the stories, the symbols or the practices. I mean, the trick for people in organised religion is always never to take our institutions too seriously. Mm. Like when we start to believe in the institution instead of values or love or spirit, that's when we get into trouble. So at one level, you and I, uh, that we have more things in common than, than, than differences. Mm. Um, and uh, I think the church has a lot to learn from these wider movements of spirituality. And, and a lot of Christians are doing that, a lot of, you'll find a lot of interesting groups. There'll be uh, uh, people of good faith from the Christian tradition who are open and learning, who are who are uh, engaged in uh, yoga or Buddhist groups or whatever. So so that there are some really good exchanges going on at the moment. So wonderful, the difference between uh, religion and spirituality, apart, apart from the kind of um, brand issues, um, it's... It, religion is really about an organised and intentional uh, response to a particular form or set of uh, uh, spiritualities. But there's always there's always a risk being part of an institution. Um, any institution can take itself too seriously. Can you tell us about some of the work that you've done? Sure. Um, particularly, um, you know, 
I know you're doing a lot of writing at the moment and you're in between jobs, but can you tell us about like some of the people that you've really helped? I know you, you've talked about um, the DV work that you're doing at the moment. Like what kind, sure. of, what kind of difference is that making for people? Perhaps I'll, 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 an array of stories. But in my humble days when I was a handsome young priest, <laughs> that's it, an exaggeration, bit of life. <laughs> I don't it'll know. Be, it'll be edited <laughs> out. Um, but, you know, I used to enjoy uh, – uh, visiting, right? Visiting people, pastoral visiting, yeah. going to people's homes, yep. going to hospitals, and uh, I, don't, I don't mean to sound disingenuous, but you know, I've always been—I mean, I'm raving on now—but I've always been uh, had a, a, an affinity for people and a, and a gift at listening. Mm. And as that's imp- you know, as I've learned to listen more effectively and empathically, people just open up. And one of the great privileges of my job is people tell you the whole life story. So I remember my early days, you know, when I was a bit rough and ready and just meeting all these extraordinary people where uh, I went to, to work with them, but they, in a way, they gave to me because of their graciousness and wisdom. Mm. Uh, and I did a lot in my early days. I did a lot of work in uh, death and dying and in palliative care, you know, when I say lots of funerals, I mean a lot of times. I, this is one of the privileges of the job is you 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 are often chosen to be the companion, mm. of someone who's dying, and that that might be over six or twelve months. And uh, I, I was there are brilliant people, you know, like my wife who work in hospitals, and and then at the end of life stage they might have a week or two. But I was often given the um, the privilege of being a, a companion with someone, and I think the difference you make there is. Uh, it's a combination of treading gently, but also recognizing you're on sacred ground. That it's yeah. really you, you, you tread gently, and so I've had some remarkable experiences with uh, dying people, where we've ended up like best mates on this holy ground, where they kind of open up, and and you are given the privilege of accompanying them. Mm. Uh, as time went on, I, I moved into more and more, you know, senior positions like the, the Dean of St Peter's Cathedral uh, and uh, a really eclectic community. A metropolitan cathedral is really diverse, all, all shapes and sizes. It was a very queer-friendly uh, community. Uh, sometimes in the sanctuary, I was the only straight guy in the in the sanctuary, really. But, wow. but I had all these wonderful uh, people who, who had a sense of uh, presence and uh, beauty and uh, the, the difference sometimes you make in a place like that is often uh, often in leadership your role is uh, sometimes to give permission but sometimes just to kind of get out the way mm. and allow others to thrive. So I, fe- I felt one of the gifts I've always had, I'm a, an enthusiast, I can smell an idea or a project in 30 seconds <laughs> and then I'll often and this happened a lot of the cathedral, I'd get groups of people together and get them to talk about it and then off they'd go. And, in fact, I, one thing I did, a more practical thing, this relates to the issue of spirituality and religion, I set up uh, this group my first year there, that was 2000, 2001, called Inquirers. Doesn't that sound a boring name? <laughs> but, but basically I got invited people who are interested in spirituality and religion to come in and they said, well, what are we doing here? And I said, well, you're going you're to have to invent this course. So for the first two weeks, and there might have been, say, uh, 14 or 16 people, 
I'd say, what do you want to talk about? And we'd spend two weeks just brainstorming. And then on that basis, we'd create, uh, say, a 12 or 14-week course. There were basic ground rules about, you know, confidentiality, treating each other respectfully and listening. But basically every year, I did that for about eight years, every year people set up the ground rules for that group. And so I had all sorts of people uh, from, you know, uh, people who'd lived with yaks in Tibet for seven years to attorneys general to scientists uh, to, you know, reformed Marxists to, you know, all sorts of people came who were searching, a bit like some of the stuff we were talking about earlier. Mm. And I think one of the gifts I had was uh, creating the space, bringing everyone together, and then the combination of, I had, you know, I've got some basic group skills of getting people to all have a chance to talk about it. Mm. And and I would give input, but it wasn't formal. So, say, funny enough, they often wanted to talk about the same thing, like uh, sexuality, you know, what is sin, uh, relationships, community, family, usually the similar topics, just a different order. So if I gave input, it was a kind of a spontaneous, because I've read heaps of stuff, as you can see from the books. Yes. It was, it was kind of spontaneous. So we might have been talking about uh, uh, sexuality. And so it, it'd go for an hour and a half. And then for 20 minutes, I would talk about uh, the evolution from, you know, there was only one sex the male sex, to two sexes, to the nature of gender, to, uh, you know, gender fluidity. Mm. And I'd then talk about the negative and the positive role of faith in relationship to that. Now, I might only have to say, say that stuff for 15 minutes mm. with a whiteboard over a glass of red, then, and then everybody would be off and running. So it was a great uh, model, uh, and, and we had fantastic nights. Um, I, I also did... Yeah, the, the Dean of the Cathedral is a great job for schmoozing, you mm. know, mixing with uh, uh, politicians and business leaders. So I did a number of philanthropic projects there, environmental uh, projects. Um, after that, I went to uh, Brisbane and taught theology for about eight years. And uh, in some ways I found, uh, you know, the, two of the great loves of my life, uh, that was... Um, uh, Michel, the French philosopher Michel Foucault, a brilliant, brilliant uh, gay philosopher, mm-hmm. and uh, Judith Butler. And uh, really probably the last 12, 12 or 13 years I've been a keen student of their work. So I've produced, uh, you know, I guess uh, a number of academic books which relate to power and violence and sexuality mm. and gender. But probably one of the gifts I gave there was to uh, theological students Um we got some terrific students. They weren't, you know, they weren't nerdy religious types. Um, well, there's nothing wrong with, I guess, being a nerdy religious <laughs> type. But, but um, they're all ages. And, in fact, the last few years we've got a lot of, lot of young ones. And one of the skills I had was uh, to take them out for a cup of coffee mm. because often when they came to a theological college, we were part of the Charles Sturt University and there was some academic rigour there and certain things, skills they had to learn it was a bit daunting so I used to take them out for coffee and the first coffee they had with the principal they were, they were a bit anxious <laughs> even if I paid for the coffee <laughs> but 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 I said I used to say that uh, 
finding your place in the world is about being eventually becoming comfortable in your own skin. Mm. And it was one of my sayings that the students quick, quickly um, grabbed onto. And uh, so, I, you know, usually we had students from all of all persuasions, you know, conservative, liberal, a few Pentecostal students. I mean, they were Anglican, but they came from diverse backgrounds, mm. different ages, uh, queer and straight. And basically my rule of thumb was forget about the Monty Python God. God, God works from the inside out. Mm. You are a spiritual being. If you are comfortable in your own skin, that which has been placed in your heart will, will, will grow and thrive and shape who you are. And that usually came as a great relief to them that, that there was no cardboard cut out of, their, of what they had to do. And, and it was such a, I mean, in some ways, none of this is recorded, but it, it gave me, you know, you don't get any plaques for this or medals for this. But looking back, uh, I mean, when I left, a lot of students thanked me for that. And that's a, that's a good use of power. Like power isn't bad. Mm. Use of power is about empowerment or shared power. Mm. And if you're open and transparent and and you, you, you don't get carried away with yourself, uh and, and you build on relationships, you often, as a, in a person in authority, you then are in a position to empower others so that he or she, uh, they or them, claim their own power and blossom. And, of course, you know, they, learn, they then learn to, you know, you learn along the way and you learn that you still need to belong and the group will keep you honest. But the key is to learn to be comfortable in your own skin. Oh, so that, that's a bit of a few things. That that is absolute magic, Steve. What you've said there. There's actually several nuggets right there that you've dropped, and and one of them for me is the um, you know God is within you. Um, really, whatever um, your soul believes is within you. It starts with you, and. Yeah, and I, I think how you've put that is just so eloquent, and also to that other thing that so many people don't find out or understand until they're far later in their years that when you're comfortable in your own skin, that's 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 where peace is, you know. Absolutely. Like, um, and it it shouldn't take that long to it learn does. that, you know. But so it many does. people, that, you know, like you're forty, fifty, and until you actually understand yeah. that. And I think if, you know, the next generations could understand that that could happen far sooner and they can have a far more beautiful life, imagine the change that we could make in this world. And often it just takes a little, uh, a little piece of encouragement. It's, it's often some being at the right place for someone else and just a little uh, trigger. And often I found, um, you know, in the West, we grew up with the Monty Python God that's that's the old bloke in the sky that pulls the strings. Now, you and I know that God or the divine is mystery, mm. absolute holy mystery, that you can't put mystery in a box. Mm. But every generation does that. Every That's just human nature, really. And once people are given permission to say, well, there are other ways of thinking about the divine, and an image I often used with students was, and this is actually an ancient one, is to think of the divine like the ocean. So, so rather than seeing... God as an old bloke in the sky pulling the strings. The divine or the sacred is like the ocean in which we all dwell and swim and live and have our being. And so rather than being zapped by God, 
we learn to, it's a bit like you and I are a, a well, a living well. We draw on that, that, that sea or that water that is within us. And funny enough too, it, it uh, usually gets people to re rethink religion and rethink, you know, the strength of someone like the figure of Jesus was he accepted people as they were and he got them in a sense to discover the living water, the living spirit in themselves and then they blossomed. So in many ways he was a community builder, he made friendships, he often gave people permission and he would he was very quick to criticise and discredit the hypocrisy or, or the dogma that got in the way. Mm. The other thing I want to talk to you about, Steve, is beliefs. Now, sure. I um, I talk to a lot of people, as you could appreciate, around the world and um, just every day. Um, and, you know, I, I get a lot of opinions from a lot of people and a lot of perspectives. And, you know, um, whether it's religious beliefs or just, you know, general kind of community beliefs, I've heard people say things around, you know, your beliefs are BS, you know, stuff yep. like that, um, which carries with it, you know, a certain level of shame depending on what those beliefs are sure. and where they lie. But when it comes to religion and, you know, like wars have started on this kind of stuff, yeah. so I don't, I don't want to go too deep, but um, I kind of want to get your perspective on <sighs> – what could you what kind of advice could you give to someone who's being told that their beliefs are bullshit basically well anyone who speaks to someone like that i'd avoid you know if someone speaks to me like that i'd say well this person's got problems anger problems or they're aggressive but the the the, the biggest response would be um it goes back a bit to what we were saying earlier that uh in 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 childhood development when we start off as kids we are dependent on adults. Mm. But it does take 30 or 40 years until we actually start to become our own kind of adult. And usually it's because of a relationship break or disaster, you know, or some sort of thing where we feel completely stripped bare. So the first 30 to 40 years, we can spend most of our time trying to please others mm. or, or, you know, shock others because of a certain you know, insecurity, and that's, that is normal, normal human existence. And then when we start to trust ourselves, when we start to treat ourselves uh, respectfully, that we ought to seek out others whom we respect. So if someone is being very judgmental and hostile, then that, that person has a problem, and that's not, that's not the sort of person I want to be with, mm. really. Now, when it comes to beliefs, you know, basically, uh, there there are certain common elements, right? Good spirituality or good faith is about uh, learning to be comfortable in your own skin. It's about choosing uh, travelling companions. It's about finding the right symbols that go with it. Usually, that group will have its own kind of a narrative or story, and within the context of that group, certain beliefs will evolve that makes sense with that group. Uh, so, so beliefs are important, but beliefs aren't an end in themselves, and beliefs change. So even within the Christian tradition, certain beliefs have evolved because we've evolved. Mm. 
right? And so belief itself, and this is where academics are important, beliefs itself should be subject to uh, uh, scrutiny. You know, how we used to treat women, mm. and the church was part of it. How we used to treat uh, people of colour and the church was part of it was often uh, uh, supported by certain beliefs. Now, we now recognise that those beliefs are erroneous or harmful, so those beliefs have been um, rejected. So, so belief, I'm not saying belief is, belief is important, mm. but it needs to be part of a journey, part of a community, and beliefs themselves need to be, uh, I think, subject to uh, public debate. And usually a community will agree on a set of beliefs that are life-giving. In, in the Anglican tradition, uh, we've always been wary of having too many beliefs that you have to sign up to. Yeah. Because we thought relationships, being together, worshipping together, dining together was more important. Uh, what, what's happened in the last five or ten years with the rise of the religious right in our church and in the world, they've often used beliefs to hit people over the head with. Mm. And it's, and it's a very narrow set of beliefs, uh, usually misogynistic or homophobic. Mm. And I don't know about you, Steve, but for me, you know, after many decades um, and, and also being, you know, raised Anglican, um, I think over time you learn what works for you. Um, I think yep, absolutely. You, you need to accept what works and let go of what doesn't. And um, not you don't have to accept all of the things that a certain religion or, or belief uh, puts in your way. Um, you you just need to take what works for you and and yeah. hold on to that. And you said there's a phrase there you said that is priceless. And that is there's some stuff you have to let go. Yeah. And um, sometimes too that might mean staying where you are, but you let go of certain beliefs or practices. Mm. Sometimes you have to let go of that institution. Mm. And it might be five or ten years, and you could end up in a very different space. So that's it's a perfectly healthy process of um, experiencing, reflecting, letting go, moving on, experimenting. That's how we learn, really. Mm. And it might be that you know you were raised a certain way, but over time you you realise, oh, look, you know, I'm really into Buddhism or whatever it might be. That's yeah. completely fine, you know. You don't have to be wedded to one religion for your entire life. And you find too that uh, in 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 the best of religions, I'm thinking of Islam, Buddhism, Christianity. There there are similar themes of love, mm. compassion, Absolutely. justice, and there are very strong very strong mystical streams within those. We had a fantastic holiday a few years ago in Japan. We love Japan. And we spent most of our time in Japanese gardens and Japanese temples, praying, reflecting, meditating, and we felt so at home in those uh, spaces, you know. Yeah. Uh, we thought we had more in common than not. Uh, yeah, it's actually interesting. I've been reading this book and I've just finished it and it's it's actually a life-changing book. Uh, it's called The Anatomy of Spirit uh, right. by uh, Carolyn Miss. And um, part of it is actually aligning um, the sacraments of um, Christianity along with sure. the chakras yeah. and, and all of the different beliefs yeah. and how they all align. And they all sure. make complete sense together, you know. Sure. Um, so it all yeah. comes together. Well, it's, they're often responding to uh, deep human needs. Mm. And they might do it in a different way, but, you know, the need for community, the need for mystery, the need for love, you know, and, 
and historically that will manifest itself differently in different cultures too. So, but, you know, as you and I would, would have said, difference is not a problem, you know. Not at Differences, all. Differences, but point of uh, creativity and engagement. Yeah. Now, if anybody could see me, Steve, my cheeks are sore from smiling at you because you're an absolute joy. But um, oh, <laughs> you're blushing. You're blushing. I know. But I, I'm keen to know from you, from all the work that you've done in community throughout Australia, what's been your biggest challenge, and how have you overcome it? Uh, probably um, the, the biggest challenge, in some ways, is change. Mm. Yeah, closure. No, <laughs> um, and that is, um, uh, and it relates to a lot of the stuff we're talking about now. Uh, the the um, after World War Two, the Western Church went through a, a time of uh, soul searching, and that's continued. And some really good thinking, theology, spirituality has emerged, and we've produced some wonderful leaders like Desmond Tutu or, or Carter Hayward. Um, yeah, it's been an incredible period of uh, creativity. In the last 20 years, though, in the West, and I'm thinking now of uh, Europe, uh, Australia, New Zealand and Canada particularly, the institutional church is declining in, in attendance. Now, not every church is, but a lot of them are. And it's nobody's fault, right? It's just it's a, it's a vast sociological change. Mm. And uh, perhaps my biggest challenge has been, and I wasn't 81, but I, but I could see it coming. And so I've been saying, I've been saying to bishops and some of them my friends, I've been saying to them for years, come on, we've got to get with the, get with the program here. The rules have changed. We have to change. Now, you know, some churches have, have adapted very well. <laughs> but to some degree, my old, my own tradition, which I love, has dogmatically stuck to the old model and way of thinking. Sure, we've, you know, picked up some jargon from business or the corporate world about, you know, rebranding ourselves and connection and et cetera. But in some ways we haven't had the courage of conviction to let go a lot of the institutional uh, trappings. Now, for two reasons they're disappointing, because the, People are still interested in spirituality. Mm. So the, the issue is forget about the old model where people out of uh, custom came to church. Think about the new model as us leaving the church buildings and being in the marketplace, being in the in the city, being in the cafes and, and engaging in these conversations that you and I are having. The other side of it is that oh, another level that in uh, the in the developing nations or in the, the global south, the church is booming. Squillions of people are becoming Christian, but unfortunately some of those churches are fundamentalist. Mm. So they're developing a kind of a dogmatic view about, uh, not all, but some are developing a dogmatic view about uh, belief, and that also, that it's often driven by issues around sexuality as well. Mm. But that's that's perhaps my biggest appointment that, you know, I've, I've I've been a beneficiary of some wonderful Christian people who have been compassionate, open and generous. So the core stuff, love, mystery, engagement, uh, 
in my view, I have what we call a sacramental view of the world. The whole world itself is a sacrament, right? Mm. Uh, and that stuff is wonderful. And it's a source of wonder and inspiration for me. But there's the institution, and, you know, we're still kind of gothic in a way. Mm. And we've been slow to change. Now, the flip side of that is it's going to, we're going to be forced into a period of experimentation, and I think that's great. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you think of, of churches, it's a very formal, it's a very yeah. um, regimented kind of um, institution um, that that has its rules and its regulations and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, you can practice your faith no matter where you are. Absolutely sure, yeah. Yeah, which is exactly what you're saying. So, um and I think, you know, in, t- in today's religion or spirituality, that's what people are doing. They're moving away, well, from, from what I can see, is they're moving away from, you know, the traditional church kind of structure and, and more into a more uh, flexible kind of spirituality. And look, some, uh, you're absolutely right. And there are lots of churches around the world, I know in the States, uh, there's a really interesting Pentecostal church in Adelaide called Activate. It's very queer-friendly, doing some very radical things. There's some very good Anglican churches in Adelaide who are open and experimenting. So around the world, the individual churches have often done that way. But often often our leaders are dragging dragging the feet because uh, psychologically, often in positions of leadership, you can become so entrenched in the old institution and there can sometimes be a certain sense of entitlement. Mm. It's often hard sometimes for the leadership uh, to let go. I mean, I, I, Anglicans, Anglicans, as Anglicans, we have a lot in common with the Catholic Church mm. in terms of uh, theology and sacraments. But I look at something, someone like uh, Francis, Pope Francis, who seems a really decent human being, and sometimes you feel on a grand scale he's struggling with these issues. Mm. He, he's a person of the heart. And, and compassion, and he wants engagement, but he's got this incredible legacy behind him, which includes the use and abuse of power and privilege. And that's really interesting um, that you say that, and that's something that um, we've never d- discussed before is that, you know, you've got this this old tradition and all this legacy behind you, but you're in, you know, the 21st century and you, yeah. you're trying to meet the two and, you know, people have got all these new beliefs and they want all these new things and life is changing and people are evolving and yet you're trying to make the two fit. It doesn't quite go, right? And, and you know, it, it creates kind of underground movements in the Catholic Church. Yeah. There are a number of religious orders who have been brilliant over the decades, who've done very creative things because they have an autonomy over the poor old parish priest. And, uh, you know, there's some really savvy uh, Jesuits and Dominican sisters that I know who've done some wonderful stuff. But the institution itself is, is, if it's playing catch-up, it's a long way behind. Yeah. Now, uh, one question I love to ask guests on the show, Steve, is um, all around the mission behind Ethical Change Agency here. And um, so I want to find out from you, can you define what being ethical means to you? Sure. Look, there's a big debate in the academy over these sort of things. But basically, uh, if, I, if I can start with the values, right, mm, mm. and values are basically something we invest in. You know, so for example, someone could uh, uh, really like 
luxury items and that they, they buy lots of luxury items in a sense their value is economic uh, and uh, since the uh, Margaret Thatcher Ronald Reagan era that value of investing in things the economic value the the ethics of economics has completely dominated uh, the West, or oh, most of the world, really. And I think what's happened in the last 10 or 20 years is people have said, well, that value is not doing me any good. So it's a bit like our journey. People have said, I, I value relationships. I value the spirit. I value decency. I value goodness. So ethics is really, I think, the the identification of core values that are life-giving, which we then use to develop into kind of a, a system. I don't mean a, a dry and dusty system, but we, we bring together a set of values that ring uh, true with us, and we then try to live them out. Mm. And so ethics, I think, is about the identification of values that are life-giving and then with others, it's, it's the attempt to, well, well, these values are important to us. How do we live with these values? How do these values shape who we are? Now, I think, too, if you look at um, the debate about uh, climate change at the moment, um, you know, it's laid down the zero. You know, climate, you know, one million scientists around the world said this is a problem, right? But, but for the ordinary punters, we think that, the environment is beautiful. We 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 place a value on beauty, mm. on on nature. So we have a different set of values now. At the moment, the climate change debate is really actually an ethical debate. Mm. You might say it's political, but it's about it's about the economic or instrumental value system that has dominated us, which for me is like a desert, which has led to the destruction of uh, the earth and and habitats and reduction of biodiversity, the pollution of seas, and, and you know, it's been so toxic. But there's this emergence of, of, of a different set of values uh, and people w wanting to live uh, a, a life that is ethical, a practice of ethics. And actually, we'd like to see some of our leaders uh, behave in an ethical way. And I think that's why Aussies love uh, Jacinda Ardern mm. because she, she has a very clear sense of who she is She's comfortable in her own skin and she has a very strong set of core values. So, okay, maybe she doesn't get all the political stuff right, but her integrity and her ethical value system rings true with a lot of people. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, I truly think, um, you know, the whole ethos behind this show, um, the ethical evolution, that there is an evolution happening. People yeah. are waking up. They're starting to see that they can't keep doing the same things anymore because of the results that we're getting. Ah. So we need to make different decisions. We need to make different choices because if we're going to continue to be on this planet, we need to do something. And Afghanistan is a, is, a, mm. is a really pressing example of that is I think there are millions of people around the world whose hearts are bleeding Absolutely. for the people of Afghanistan, especially the women and children. Mm. And, and in a way, the, the, the recognition that the, 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 the present economic system, what we call, you know, the neoliberal system where the market is everything, 
has left us morally and spiritually bankrupt. Mm. And the war in Afghanistan is somehow parallel with that. And, and the fact that we beat such a hasty retreat and those people have to suffer also raises profound ethical issues that, mm. from, from my perspective, the Afghani people are, are my sisters and brothers. I am connected to them and I don't want to wash my hands nor hide behind the old propaganda of five or ten years ago that if we if we help them, the boat people will return. You know, the game is over and there's a desperate need for a, a, a new ethical practice at a national level. Yeah, and, I mean, again, it comes back to what we were saying in the beginning, we're all human and regardless of yeah. where we live, what colour we are, who we love, we're all the same, you know. And once we start taking humanity and the value of humanity and those things seriously, watch out because it because it will it will trigger a deep and profound uh, movement. And we need that kind of grassroots ethical revolution, really. I think we could be onto something here, Steve. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we could tilt the axis of the earth right here, right now. <laughs> give it a go. Let's give it it's, a crack. Note this date. Now, Steve, if people want to find out more about you and what you do, where can they go? Oh, look, um, I'm going to sound so so uh, old fogey. I don't have a website. Um, <laughs> but I, look, they they could uh, they go to something like Amazon.com, you know, and just Stephen G. Ogden. Uh, they'll see I've written some academic books, which you know about power and violence, but I've written some uh, you know popular readers. Digest-style theology books like Love Upside Down and I'm a God Bermuda. So they can Google me as an Amazon on Amazon.com and as an, and as an Amazon author. But I've also got a, um, a YouTube um, uh, site, and I've put a few a brief, you know, 13 to 14 minute reflections on them. Uh, uh, I, I started doing that during the, the the COVID pandemic. I was in a parish at the time, and they sold like hotcakes in the first 12 minutes, but now, you know, I've got four subscribers and a dog. But there is, <laughs> but there are probably 30 or 40 uh, YouTubes up there under my name. And actually, in terms of our topic, there are probably half a dozen little gems mm. on spirituality, on faith, on uh, women, on, I do quite a few on, uh, I do one on queering God and a queer Jesus and trans, transgender stuff. So there's a bit of a smorgasbord there, and they're only about 14 minutes long. So. Yeah, and, um, you know, you and I have been connected for many years and um, we've been kind of bubbling up in each other's socials for a few yeah. years and I, I I realised that I really needed to chat to you again and, and I saw some of your YouTube through COVID and I just went, oh, my God, we need to talk. Um, so, oh, good. I'm flattered. So yeah, that's kind of where this came from. So if you if you're on the web, jump on Google and um, just Google Stephen G Ogden, you will find his goal right there. Um, I believe he's also on LinkedIn. If you want to connect with him, but that's right. So yeah, LinkedIn. Happy to connect on LinkedIn, YouTube, and uh, Amazon.com. Also, too, I think my on LinkedIn and Amazon, there's an email too. I don't mind if people email me. Awesome. So I got the last big question for you, Steve, and I'm so curious to hear what your answer is. Uh oh. <laughs> What's the change you'd like to see in the world, and how can we bring it to life? 
Well, look, this is such a cliche. You know, I don't want to depress everyone, but, you know, it's a crisis. With climate change, what's happening in Afghanistan, and one of my particular interests recently has been, you know, the, the rise of strongman uh, politics that, that uh, in this book that I've got come out in September, which is called Violence, Entitlement and Politics, I, I look at domestic violence and military violence, and I conclude that it's often difficult to change perpetrators, right? Mm. Very limited success. So we need cultural change. And what's been happening in our culture the last 20 years is all these bullies from Xi Jinping to Donald Trump and, and Putin, all these bullies are ruling the world. And they act in an entitled uh, manner. So basically there does mean, and this is what you're doing, into your work so important, we need an ethical revolution, a grassroots ethical uh, revolution about compassion and love and spirit because at the moment the bullies are winning and, and, and issues of climate change or how we respond to refugees or people in Afghanistan are really important ethical debates. So I'm hoping that um, there's a kind of grassroots uh, revolution that, that uh, spills out of the voting box and that we see a new generation of, we, we, the world needs more Jacindas and um, we need some really good uh, leaders who are supported by people who are looking for deep and lasting values, things of love, things of the spirit. Oh, Steve, that was absolutely beautiful. <laughs> I'm verging on tears here at the moment. Um, I'll like, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> like, and like I said earlier, my cheeks are so sore from smiling at everything you're saying tonight. And, um, yeah, like that is absolutely beautiful. And, yes, I, I am here to make a change, as we all are. So I can't thank you enough for being a part of the Ethical Evolution. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. No, you're doing great stuff and it's my honour. Honour to catch up with you, really. Have to do it again. Thanks for listening to the Ethical Evolution podcast. If you're an ethical business owner, change maker, or holistic healer who's determined to make a change in the world and you need support to spread your message, visit ethicalchangeagency.com to collaborate. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Ravelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric acid.